Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll be preaching today from the Gospel reading, Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we hear your word to us today, fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we may wait for your Son to come again in confidence and joy and to be stirred up to a life of good works as we wait. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Every week here, we confess our common faith in one of the creeds. And so, week by week, we do confess that Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And in these last Sundays of the church year, our attention is especially turned to this aspect of our Christian faith. The resurrection from the dead, the coming of Christ, the final judgment, the things of eternal life. And so we are moved to ask certain questions then, such as, how do we face the coming of Christ? Is it something we can face with confidence, even with joy? How do we prepare for the coming of Christ? How do we live now in light of that future event? Our text today especially helps us to consider these sorts of questions. So let's look closely at it today, and we'll do so under three headings. First is the great glory of the one on the throne. Second is the gracious invitation to those on the right. Third is the terrible word of judgment to those on the left. First, the great glory of the one on the throne. From the start of our text, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. So when the Son of God came into this world in the womb of Mary, he did not come invisible glory. He came in humility. He came in lowliness. St. Paul says he emptied himself. His closest disciples, they, they got a glimpse of his true glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And for those with eyes to see, his glory was revealed in his teaching and in his miracles and most mysteriously in his death and of course in his resurrection. But when he was on earth in his life, in his ministry, for the most part, he came in humility. He came in lowliness. When he comes again, it will be different though. When he comes again, the scriptures tell us he comes in glory. He comes in splendor. He comes in majesty. Just in the chapter before this, Jesus had said, As the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. No one's going to miss this. He comes again in glory. And notice a part of this glory is that he comes, it says, with all his angels. Now the book of Revelation speaks of myriads, of myriads of angels. 10,000 upon 10,000 of angels. 
We are meant to imagine something like this in our mind's eye, an awe-inspiring scene. Just as the angels surrounded Christ in his life, so they surround him at his coming again. Earlier in the gospel, Jesus spoke of the angels as the reapers gathering in the harvest. And now we hear this happening, that all the nations are gathered before him, And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He comes in glory. These first few verses, they're worth taking time just to meditate on and imagine in your mind's eye. Because this is a crucial part of our Christian faith that is constantly challenged and that we need to hold on to. Last week, those of you who were here may remember that I preached on the first few verses of the Bible. And we touched then on how the world has its ideas about where the universe came from and why we are here, but as Christians, we listen to God's Word. And we learn that everything that exists comes from the creative work of God. Similarly, when it comes to the end of all things... People have their ideas about how and when and why this world as we know it will come to an end. But as Christians, we listen to what God has revealed to us. And we hear that no matter what else happens, the decisive event at the end of this world as we know it is the coming of Christ in glory to judge the living and the dead. That's where it's all heading. This world as we know it now will not go on forever. And this world as we know it will not be brought to an end by circumstances beyond God's control. The end comes according to the plan and the purpose of God. St. Paul says in the book of Acts, God has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness Of this he has given us assurance by raising Jesus from the dead. So there's the great glory of the one on the throne. Second, there is the gracious invitation to those on the right. From verse 34, Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from, before, from the foundation of the world. Please do not miss these words of gracious invitation. They're spoken to the sheep right from the beginning, before any mention of what they have done. A word of invitation, come. A word of blessing from the Father a word of inheritance of a kingdom, not of something earned, but an inheritance of a kingdom which has been prepared for you. And not just yesterday, and not just as an afterthought, but from the foundation of the world. This is not the language of merit. This is the language of grace. The king already knows his sheep. Jesus has said earlier in the gospel, everyone who acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. 
The decisive moment has already come before this, and it is one's relationship to the King. As we consider Christ coming again for final judgment, we must always remember this fundamental truth, that the coming King is your Saviour. That the one who sits on the throne to judge all is the very same one who hung on the cross to save you. It's the same Jesus. And that fundamentally is why we wait for Christ to come again in confidence and with joy. The king already knows his sheep. But then there is a particular focus here, isn't there? that those who do belong to Christ, they show this in their lives, especially of mercy to the least. Jesus says, I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, you gave me clothing. I was sick, you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. We had a similar sort of theme in our collect today, our prayer for the day. I wonder if you heard that. It spoke about being mindful of the end of all things, that we may be stirred up to holiness of living. The king, the judge, is also our saviour, but his coming again is to stir us up in a sense, to stir us up to a life of holiness, to stir us up to a life of good works, to stir us up to a life of mercy for the least. But then it gets even more mysterious, doesn't it? Because the sheep, the ones now called the righteous, they don't recall doing any of this. It's certainly not for Jesus himself. When was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food? And Jesus says, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. You know, throughout history, people have been inspired by this teaching of Jesus to all sorts of incredible lives of mercy in our world. So Mother Teresa was quite inspired by this teaching of Jesus, among other parts, to do the work that she did in the slums of Calcutta. Certainly, Christian people are to live lives of mercy towards all people, to love our neighbour as ourself, no matter who it is. Jesus even calls us to love our enemies. But notice that there does seem to be something in particular Jesus is driving at here. There seems to be something a bit more specific. He says about doing these things for the members in his family. The original, it just says, brothers, brothers and sisters. These are Jesus' disciples. So what's actually going on here? Well, let me give you an illustration to think about this from a different perspective. Imagine there is a mother who sends her son off to school. And at school, this child is bullied by an older child and is pushed over and left on the ground crying with grazed knees and elbows. 
Now, just to make it worse, imagine that somehow the mother can witness all this from a distance, but is completely unable to do anything about it. Then another child comes along and helps this little boy up, takes care of him, takes him to the office, gets him cleaned up, and sits with him and waits until he's feeling better. Now, the mother in this story Can you imagine how she would feel about what that other child did for her child? She would quite literally feel as if this child had done a kindness to her. So much do parents identify with their little ones and their love for them is so great that an act of mercy done for them is as good as done for the parents. Jesus seems to be pointing to something like this, but something far more. As I said, just to be clear again, of course Christians are to love all people regardless of creed or colour or background. That is a given. But he also says here that he identifies so closely with his disciples, with Christian people, especially with the least of them, that mercy shown to them is mercy shown to him. Think of Saul when he's persecuting Christians. And Jesus appears to him and he says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so identifies with his disciples that he calls people to show mercy for them and says, as you did it for the least of them, you did it for me. That's the gracious invitation to those on his right. Then finally is the word of terrible judgment to those on the left. Then he will say to those that is left, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. And on it goes. These will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. This is a hard word for modern ears to hear. But it is very clear from the teaching of our Lord Jesus that there is such a thing as eternal punishment and people will end up there. It's almost a mirror image, this part of the text, from what we heard earlier, isn't it? So now it's not come, but depart. Now it's not blessed, but cursed. Now it's not you did do it, but you did not do it. It reminds me of another mirrored saying of Jesus earlier in the gospel that I've already quoted half of. Everyone who acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge, but everyone who denies me before others, I will deny. Again, what makes you a sheep or a goat, what puts you on the right or the left, is your relationship to the shepherd. You are either for him or against him. You either reject him or you receive him. You either trust him or you don't. But again, one of the decisive ways in which this is shown, this regard or disregard for Christ... Jesus says, is how you treat 
his people, especially how you treat his messengers. It's true, isn't it, that when people reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, this also often comes with a rejection of his messengers. When people are hostile to Christ, they are often also hostile to Christians. Not always. But Jesus is saying that there is something spiritually significant in that. Now, on the positive side of that equation, there can be encouragement here. Because when you meet a person who would not call themselves a follower of Christ, but they are willing to welcome you as one who bears the name of Christ, that's not nothing. That may even be the first step toward faith. Remember Jesus' words earlier in the Gospel, whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. Nevertheless, This scene of terrible judgment to those on the left reminds us that there is an urgency to the gospel message. There will come a day when a final separation comes and Christians need to be sober-minded about this, realistic about what we are taught about eternal punishment. And at the same time, we need to strike the right tone in how we talk about it, following the example of our Lord Jesus. Because I said before, this is almost a mirror image of what we hear to those on the right, and I say almost because there is a difference. To those on the right, the king says, come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. But to those on the left, there's a curious variation. He says, depart from me, you accursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, not prepared for them. It seems to me the implication of these words is that Jesus is saying no human being was ever meant to end up there. No one made in the image of God was meant to end up eternally separated from God. These words have a note of tragedy about them. And as Christians, we must speak of what Jesus speaks of, but we must also speak about it in the way he speaks about it. There is never any joy at the thought of anyone being lost. We heard in that reading from Second Peter today, God wants no one to perish. God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Yet there is a day of final separation. This is the terrible word of judgment to those on the left. So there was the great glory of the one on the throne. There was the gracious invitation to those on the right and then that terrible word of judgment to those on the left. Brothers and sisters, never forget that the one who sits on the throne to judge all is the one who hung on the cross to save you. That's where he's going in the gospel straight after he gives this teaching. So having the promise of a kingdom prepared for us from before the foundation of the world 
and being mindful of the end of all things, let us be stirred up to holiness of living, especially in lives of mercy for the least. God grant it for Jesus' sake. Amen.